Welcome to season one of Reclaiming Jesus Now. 10 conversations with Jim Wallace, exploring the themes of his new book, Christ in Crisis. We're your host. I'm William Matthews. And I'm Allison Trowbridge. Today, we're talking about Chapter 7, The Caesar Question. Jim, I want to talk to you about a moment in history when Jesus rode a donkey into Jerusalem, something that I think growing up in the church, we see that as a religious event, but it was also a political one. Yeah, first of all, he came into the city. This is the capital This was both where political and religious authority were settled. What's most interesting is at the same time, on the same day, when he rode into one gate, Herod, the representative of Rome, rode into the city by another gate with horses and chariots and soldiers. The paradox was very clear. This is Passover. Jewish holiday, central time, and and Jesus walked in on a donkey, which clearly represented uh, humility and his servant style of leadership, we, which we've already discussed, and Herod wrote in symbolizing Roman rule, power, soldiers, and chariots. The contrast was clear. Why did he go into the city? I mean, why not just stay out in the country, have his own group, living how they wanted to live. Uh, There was a group called the Essenes, which were in fact that, kind of a monastic group. There were the Zealots and the Essenes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, different groups, spying differently to power. And he wrote in the city, he was bringing his new order, his kingdom of God and all those values into the place of power. Therefore, it was a confrontation with power. If he hadn't gone into the city, he'd never have been killed. So he went into the city offering another way. And on that Palm Sunday, the people laid branches on on the ground, which was an affirmation of his leadership, his being a king of a different sort. What kind of king, what kind of rule, what kind of kingdom, what kind of, what kind of authority is in fact being raised by him coming into the city? I, I always love to put this picture back in maybe a, a real context. Because like, when I feel like growing up with this scripture— um, and we've celebrated, you know, Palm Sunday, right? And it's become so ritualized. I forget how much of a rebel Jesus was. So here's this guy who's going all over, you know, Israel and Judea, and he is flouting some alternative authority, right? He's like feeding poor people. He's touching the the people that you're not supposed to touch. He's doing acts of civil disobedience. Like he's ruffling religious feathers. He's ruffling political feathers. He's almost kind of like the Robin Hood type figure. You know, mm-hmm. like in terms of, And then the people begin to slowly adore him and like they love him. And he's so him coming to the Jerusalem on this donkey is so, it's it's like it's like 
the only way I could I think probably describe it is if like one of the greats of our generation, like I'm always thinking musically, like like a Bono or a Prince or you know, like he has this sort of like air about him because guess what? They're not complying with and I think both of those artists in particular have been in their own ways defiant towards the status quo. And to sort of see like this guy riding into Jerusalem on a donkey as this, like you said, representation of simplicity and humility, because here are these powerful Romans flouting their like strength and power. And then here comes this like dude on a donkey going, I get the real adoration and love because I'm doing it out of truth and authenticity. You demand force. You, you're weak. Your power is weak. And, and it's so, such a, a, a hit to folks' ego it's a hit to Caesar's ego. It's a hit to Pilate's ego, right? Like, because again, they're the powerful ones, the religious people and, and the, the governing officials, they're the ones in power, meaning like we're flexing our strength. And here's this guy going, doing the opposite thing, the serving thing. And that, but, that's a, but that's a flex all on its own. And that's why they killed him. And so one of the things I loved about this book is to me, you create such a great comparison to civil disobedience as the real reason why Jesus was crucified. You know, and we, we made a, a, all the other, well, for the salvation of the world and like all this other stuff. But the real root of like, why did these people want to murder him? Was because he was breaking every social norm. And then he was doing it in such a way that made that like enraged them. Like how dare you come in Jerusalem with a, on a donkey and then they're praising you. <laughs> like, that just, that's kind of crazy. So I guess, I mean, I don't know if I have a question, but <laughs> I like. I, you, you see a contrast there. I see the contrast, which is kind of the whole point of what you're saying is uh, I, I, growing up with these passages, I didn't fully see the contrast. I felt like it kind of made every everything look bland. Like, I, I don't understand why the palm trees are really a big deal. I don't understand why the donkeys and are And it big sounds kind of sweet, right? He's like riding in on a little donkey yeah. and they're waving palm fronds. And like, we don't see the kind of earthquake that's happening in that moment. Exactly. He is he is subverting. You use that word. And I love that word uh, in, in this, this chapter. You talk about how Jesus subverts like the status quo. And by doing the serving thing, he is by its very nature saying your power is 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 basically illegitimate because there's this other kingdom. There's this other power and authority, God's power and realm and authority that you have no clue about. And you out here flexing, Caesar's flexing, and the, the government and the state is flexing. And he's going, nah, there's another world that you know nothing about. And this is what the people adore and love is that world, not yours. It's a threat of another kingdom. He's not coming in saying, let me celebrate. Uh, let's just have God in our hearts. Yeah, no. Yeah, wait. That's my message here. Let's wait, just that's... have God in our hearts. Yeah. And be obedient to what Caesar says. Which is what so many of us were told in the church. Right. I once asked at a Christian college, a very famous one, why was Jesus killed? Silence at chapel. Why was Jesus killed? Finally, somebody raised their hand and said, um, to save us from our sins. So here's Pontius Pilate and the Sanhedrin sitting around. Uh, let's kill Jesus to save those American evangelicals from their sins. <laughs> um, he was killed because he was a threat, perceived as a threat. 
by the political and the religious authorities. Do we understand that? What does that mean? Why was he perceived as a threat? Because he was, he was hanging out with prostitutes, like the people you're not supposed to give dignity to. He was, he was dignifying them. He was saying they were fully human and they were loved. Like when he, he got the woman caught in adultery, when he like stood between her and the men that were trying to stone her, that was for the, for an ancient world context to do something. Actually, I think Jesus probably to the ancient world presented the model for valuing the victim that victims matter. Marginalized people matter. They should be in the center. So to, to, to imagine him in this context, like forcing folks to give dignity to people they were comfortable disregarding and to say they matter and how we treat them matters to us and to God was like, I, th- I would imagine that's like a bomb going off. It's a bomb going off now. And we have, we have enough like thousands of years of history to justify why that's worthwhile but i think in an ancient world context the the history was given for the powerful it was always written by the the conquerors and so to say that power and strength does not matter <laughs> that it's lowliness and serving and we like to an ancient world that was that was a bomb going off i think it was it disrupted everyone and everything and it incited rebellion truthfully he had already laid out the charter of his kingdom, his new order. Yeah, Matthew 4, 5, 6. Yeah, it was uh, blessed are the poor, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who, who mourn, who are sorrowful, who have compassion, blessed are those who are meek and humble, uh, blessed are those who, who have a hunger for justice and righteousness. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who try to resolve conflicts. Uh, Blessed, these are the people who are happy or blessed. And that charter literally turns the world upside down. It's like a new constitution. It's like a new social liberation to say, hey, guess what makes you free? By being low. By going low. Guess what makes you free? Hey, you feel the low? God says the kingdom's for you. You're going to be raised up. The first will be last. It's the upside down kingdom. Yeah. It's it's, It's inverted. It is. But he's also telling the powerful authorities, you're really last. And the people on the bottom are really first. (laughs) And you're like, oh, that. That's like going to Donald Trump right now and saying, uh, um, you think you're first? Actually, you're you're in the back. Wait, what? What does that do? Like, think that ego that would say, no, I should be served first. I should be worshipped. I should be adored. I should be loyalty belongs to me. And to say, for a guy like Jesus to come along and say, nope. The heart of of the question of this this chapter, the Caesar question, derives from Matthew 22, where the disciples are, are asking Jesus this question about, about taxes, but it's really more about what's the role of government in the life of the person of faith. And and Jesus famously says, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and render unto God the things that are God's. And I wonder if this is a passage that the American church has gotten very, very wrong on their interpretation. Well, uh, when he came into the city, like we're discussing, where did he go? 
was his first place to go to, to the, temple. the temple, which was a symbol of both political, religious, and economic power. And he says, after overturning the tables, my house shall be called a house of prayer for our nation. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. So that's where he went, and that's what he did, and that's what he said. So there's this contrast or seeming contradiction. And then we get to the very question you asked when he's being tested. Tested. Um, what do we owe Caesar? What do we owe? Uh, and he says, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, but unto God the things that are God's. So that means we don't owe everything to Caesar. Right away there's a distinction. If religion is just in our hearts, it's just private between me and God, uh, and that's really all it is, then you can give Caesar everything Caesar wants. There's no reason to even go to Jerusalem, and certainly not to the center of power in the capital city, and say, this is not, uh, I'm going to overturn these tables. <laughs> That's not what you do if your religion is just for your heart mm, and yeah. what's in your heart. Mm. So it's interesting in Romans 13, Paul talks about uh, the role of the government. And, uh, you know, uh, when I was a young kid, we would put Romans in, in seminary. We would often say, well, Romans 13 says this, but Re Revelation 13 and other places say that. Well, Romans 13 is actually a good passage if we had time to study it. It talks about the role of governmental authority. It talks about rewarding the good, punishing the evil, doing what is best for the common good, you know, for the general welfare as our documents say it. Serving that, making sure that we can lead us to these peaceful, peaceful lives. Government is meant to, 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 to have there be some rules of how you behave, and the government is supposed to make sure that we're safe and secure, and we're serving uh, what we might call in Catholic social teaching the common good. Now, when Romans 13 is violated is abused, like when children were being taken from their parents at the border, migrant children stripped yeah. from their parents, the Attorney General Jeff Sessions and Sarah Huckabee Sanders, the President's advisor, called that child detention biblical. Yeah, they did. Citing Romans 13. Biblical. So the elders who did Reclaiming Jesus responded, this is yet another misuse and violation of the word of God. To defend a morally indefensible policy, this is a line of demarcation that political power must not be allowed to cross. If Jesus is Lord, we are called to love our neighbors in every circumstance and even to love our enemies. Matthew 22, as you pointed out, 
Jesus puts loving God and your neighbor at the heart of everything. Mm. So Romans 13 was used and abused to justify detaining children after taking them from their parents. Mm. Could you imagine if if Jesus was walking around today, I, I think he would be like liberating these children because this is a very, like the way he overturned uh, the tables in the temple. He's mm-hmm. like, you are using my like scripture to justify such i mean he did that for money right like because people like were profiting and agreed you know off of god's people imagine i don't know i kind of i would like to see that maybe we should make a film about it <laughs> <laughs> like jesus liberating these kids from cages because and be, because it's being done in his name like it's being done using the Apostle Paul's words as a justification for what Jesus would be doing now, which is to be locking up these children. And I think this kind of takes us to another point you talk about in this chapter, which is civil disobedience. And what does that look like? And and what does it look like as a matter of faith to stand up against inequity and injustice? Well, as we sit here and speak, I'm not sure when people will hear this podcast, but this last few days, you had Catholics, led by Catholic women, go to the rotunda of the U.S. Capitol in the name of their faith to protest these cages holding children, these detention centers, on the basis of their faith. These are Many of them were old nuns mm. who were arrested, handcuffed, and taken to jail for saying, you can't do this. Close these detention centers. Uh, liberate, free these children. Let them go back to their moms and dads and families. This was done as an act of faith, an act of worship. Uh, by Catholic sisters and habits uh, doing a rosary in the rotunda of the U.S. Capitol. Um, You know, the question, is Jesus a revolutionary? (laughs) First of all, Jesus did reject the violence of the zealots who were the revolutionaries of his day. The way of Jesus, as we were just talking about, as William was passionately uh, speaking of, and you, there's a song there, William, I gotta say. What he's calling for is indeed revolutionary in relation to the values of the status quo, who's important, who's not, a whole new order meant to turn, be an upside down kingdom. That's what he's doing here. So it's deeper and more radical than the political options of his day. So then, sometimes, um, civil disobedience to clarify who you are, and to who you belong, and who you're most loyal to is indeed necessary. You might call it sometimes divine obedience. Mm. Mm. That's good. Which yeah, leads really to good. civil disobedience. I, I get really passionate about this subject, obviously, <laughs> because I, I've got a bit of a rebel in me, for sure. Um, th- but there's something so freeing about Christ through the Holy Spirit being power to the powerless. Like he is, he is power to the very people who don't have power. He is power to resist, 
the power to love, the power to to reclaim one's life, even unto death, to say my life matters, even if you can kill my body, but you can't kill my soul. Mm-hmm. Um, I think to, to paraphrase James Cone, like he, you know, like he is power to the powerless. And you said this, and because Jesus didn't just do this purely on his own authority, he did this, um, these radical acts of faith and justice. He did them through the lens of the prophets who had come before him. Um, and in divine connection to to God, the Father. Um, and you write, Jesus is portrayed as deliberately choosing a prophetic style of confrontation with authority at virtually every level of law and custom in society in order to underscore the new authority of the kingdom of God. It is inevitable that he would meet the cross, a form of capital punishment reserved by the Romans for political dissidents and that the Jewish authorities would work in close collaboration with Rome to secure his condemnation. Like it's sort of caked and baked. I used to wonder like, how did, how did Jesus predict his death? Like, how did he, did he just know supernaturally <laughs> that they were going to kill him? Like, you know, and, and it's actually like, no, when you begin to speak truth to power, when you begin to move in civil disobedience, when you begin to move in the authority of the kingdom of God, you naturally present a conflict with the kingdoms of this world and, and Caesar and empire and, when that happens, all hell breaks loose and and religion and politics end up colluding in order to kill you. Um, that feels like to me, not just what you're saying, but that feels radical. And I don't know if that's something the church has really understood as their radical calling to embody that type of divine obedience, as as you call it. The cross was and was intended to signal a political execution. Yeah. A political execution. It was saved for people who were perceived to be threats to the power of the ruling authorities. So that says a lot about how this new way of life that you uh, described here that was was perceived, was felt to be a threat. And so kingdom is the kingdom of god you know uh, jesus used that language uh, the kingdom of god has arrived and when his opening line was repentance repent for the kingdom of god is at hand it didn't say repent cuz we're going to change your heart about a few sins that you've committed particularly sexual sins we love talking about those. <laughs> yeah. It says repent, and repent there doesn't mean feel bad or sorry or guilty. Repentance means the word there is metanoia, turn around. Go a whole different direction because a new order is at hand. I'm come bringing a new order. So this is not just an atonement for your sins, which I believe in too, but this is the announcing of a new order that we're describing here. And that's a threat to the powers that be. So then Paul uh, does not say that cruelty is a justifiable tool or role for the government, as was said of the detaining of the kids. But government is meant to be God's servant for your good. It says, it says uh, uh, for the rulers are not a terror to good conduct, 
but to bad. Um, and so how do we respect the role of what government is supposed to be, but make clear where our loyalties lie? Mm. I want to dive into this section of, of the book in this chapter that I, I really loved, where you got into this notion of political homelessness um, and being politically homeless. And, you know, it's interesting, William and I are both formerly registered Republicans. Right now I'm not registered as, as anything. Um, but, you know, this sense of both the parties getting it wrong. And you talk about how, I, I just want to read a couple passages because it's, I think it's so poignant to our present moment. You talk about how the Republican Party has too often disregarded the best values of principled conservatism, fiscal integrity and responsibility, and allegiance to truth and honesty, genuine pro-family values, national security through global engagement, the commitment to opportunity for all, the value of empathy for those in need, and the worth and equality of every person under the law. And then you go on to say that the Democratic Party, on the other hand, has lost its historic relationship to working class people around the country and has indeed become dominated by cultural elites who have little connection to ordinary families and the many pressures on their lives. Democratic consultants have replaced the word poor with the words middle class and the party is no longer perceived as one that cares nearly enough about the needs of people on the margins of life in America. And I think a lot of people today have walked away with this sense of, of not having a political home. And that leads to disengagement, people not voting, people uh, just truly, truly uh, a sense of apathy to the outcomes of, of elections in the current political system. And so I want to kind of dig into this idea both of, of how we respond to that and in uh, as people of faith and find a moral movement that is not defined by one political party or the other, but rather a uh, convictions of faith, morality, values, ethics, and then furthermore, kind of the secular fundamentalism that has come out of these political parties. Well, you raise a lot there. And I think uh, that feeling of being politically homeless is felt by lots of people for those reasons that you just described that we talk about here in the book. Um, if the Republicans have taken conservative principles but have been militarized and corporatized instead of following those best values, uh, and now uh, a party that literally has become a cult for a president— Mm. who's taken over the party and turned it into a personal cult for his own uh, his own wealth and power. Well, that makes a lot of Republicans, I know, feel very uh, homeless. And uh, when Democrats, I remember it was a conversation we had with a Democratic leader, um, and in our group, the Catholic bishop said, well, um, we're here because of a text at this table with you, which doesn't say, as you've done to the middle class, you've done to me. <laughs> it says, as you've done to the least of these, 
you've done to me. Not consultants who say the poor don't vote or don't donate. Or when Democrats realize that literally black voters are the core of their party, but have yet to invest and commit themselves to uh, black leadership and activists and whole infrastructures around the country, uh, holding communities together, uh, led by often local, not even famous black leaders in neighborhoods and no commitment to them and to that. It seems to me that, and we've talked a little bit before about the way the the parties have switched, um, like, uh, and how uh, Democrats became the the party of voting rights and how a lot of people left the Democratic Party. The Dixiecrats left and joined the Republican Party. Um, it seems to me there's a core, there seems to be a correlation between Democrats taking ownership of black and brown constituents mm. um, to attacks from Republicans towards Democrats. Like, I don't know if I'm making sense here. Like, there seems to be this... Uh, attack that black people experience in this country where if you like urban cities are demonized black on black crimes a talking point on the news Mm -hmm. um uh and this is what's wrong with those communities i feel like the attacks on black people correspond very similarly to the attacks on democrats as a party oh you don't care about uh um morality which is often the same type of thing that is waged to black people, black people don't really care about morality. Look at their communities. Like I, I feel like I find so many direct parallels, and I, I don't know. It's something you said that really clicked that f- for me. That ever since the '60s, it seems like um, part of the strategy to uh, was not just to disenfranchise black and brown communities, but also to kind of paint this narrative about who the Democratic Party is and what they stand for. And I'm not really here trying to make a stand for the Democratic Party, as much as. Uh, I think those those two seem to go together. Well, uh, but this is where the the Republican Party. You mentioned the best of conservative values. You just laid them out. But when the Republican Party decided to do what you just said, become um, uh, take the party, take white Southerners away from Democrats because Democrats supported the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Bill. When they did that, the Republicans said, let's take back white Southerners to our party. The party of Lincoln, as they like to say, became a party of the Southern strategy. Hmm. Using uh, white resentment, anger, and even hatred as an energy for that party. So the Republican Party despite those best conservative values, was militarized, being for unlimited military expansion and spending, even if it had nothing to do with our national security, corporatized, the corporations now rule, and even write legislation, literally in the halls of Congress, and racialized, developing a Southern strategy to make the Republican Party, the party of white people, all of which the current president has even maximized. Uncritical support, endless support for the military, no matter what it costs and what, who it costs. 
uh, corporations being, in fact, ruling the party, uh, defining the party with its own interests, and uh, a racialized party now becoming the party of white nationalism. So that makes good principled conservatives that I know many and historic Republicans feel homeless in that party. And then Democrats, as you said, are often, as perceived now, are more with cultural elites and not working people, black and white. And while blacks are the core Democratic constituency, an awful lot of black leaders and activists and whole networks and infrastructures don't feel really invested in or supported by the Democratic Party. Um, and so um, uh, this, whole, this whole question of, of uh, um, who we are with and who we are defending and as you've done to the middle class, you've done to me. That's not what the text says. <laughs> as you've done to the least of these, you've done to, mm-hmm. to me. So there's a homelessness. And part of it is a sort of, um, I know a lot of Democrats or people of faith who don't think their party anymore feels faith friendly. Mm. So I fought religious fundamentalism my whole life. But there's a kind of secular fundamentalism. Mm. It's just as irrational, illogical, uh, and doctrinaire as the, as the religious fundamentalism. For example, I have literally put my life in the hands of friends who are secular, not religious, in situations of violence. So some of my deepest allies and colleagues and friends haven't been religious that's just fine with me. But being secular is not being secular fundamentalist. Yeah, can you define what that is? It's being against religion per se. Oh, okay. Per se, being suspicious of religion per se. Okay. Let me take that further because I've just spoken about this with some of the candidates running for office. Now, this is controversial, but I'll just say it. When Democrats go to black churches during primary seasons when they're running for office, but often not other times, but during primary seasons. And what some Democrats, who I call secular fundamentalists, really feel, there's a patronizing, patronizing racism Mm. among some of the white secular fundamentalists in regard to black churches, black culture, and black activists. We'll accept religion from black people who are our base, but religion per se is part of the enemy here. Hmm. So this has got to be dealt with at a much deeper level, I think, than we have so far. So how do we, how does the Democratic Party become more faith-friendly and how does the Republican Party uh, stop acting like they own religion, mm. right? So how do we have not a religious left in response to a religious right, but how does faith hold both parties accountable? How does faith hold us all accountable to the poor, to the marginalized, to those on the outside? 
and how do we invest in those people going forward? Uh, those are the tough questions here that make a lot of us feel kind of sometimes politically homeless. Yeah, I, I, I definitely see that and agree with that. And it's hard because when it comes time for very crucial decisions to be made, that type of homelessness oftentimes can lead to inaction or indifference in its own right because it all feels too overwhelming. The problems on the right seem too overwhelming or the problems on the left seem too overwhelming for, you know, from different vantage points. Um, and so how do we move beyond inaction? Because I feel like part of the 2016 election, there was a lot of inaction for lots of reasons um, or, or indifference towards the, the real existential threat that um, Trumpism was bringing. And I think the fear this time around is that people are still a bit indifferent towards that. Like, how do we rally? Because it's not really to me about being a Democrat or, or signing up for party allegiance as much as it is um, resisting this type of white nationalism that is working in and through the current administration. How can we actually mobilize people to resist Caesar? Like Christians of all like um, denominational stripes and, and people of all faiths. How do we mobilize Christians alongside atheists, alongside Muslims, <laughs> alongside Jews, alongside like, I think that's kind of the, the, the hard thing the left is trying to do is to build that coalition because the right has a very strong, easy hold because it's very much one type of person. Generally, there's pe obviously lots of people inside of that, but like it's primarily a white identity party that are primarily all Christian where the left seems to try to want to string together a some type of multi-ethnic, but also multi-faith or also multi-belief uh, agnostics with atheists, with, you know, Christians, with Jews. And so how how can we actually move beyond the indifference of the because it's a popular sentiment. Both parties suck. Everyone just says that. So let's unpack that. That's that's really good because both parties suck. Therefore, I'm going to be cynical and withdraw is not an option for us. Mm. Yeah. Because cynicism leads to withdrawal is an act of privilege. Yes. That yeah. only people who are going to be okay no matter what happens. Yeah. Uh, liberal white progressives are among the most wealthy people in the country. Absolutely. And who are benefiting from all the tax cuts to the wealthy that they say they're against. They're actually better off. Okay. So withdrawal, cynical withdrawal isn't possible for followers of Jesus. So how do we engage? Now, I want to say clearly, I believe in the separation of church and state. Amen. <laughs> which liberal Democrats often say that's why they won't get involved religiously or speak of their faith because they're afraid of those who want to uh, politicize religion or act like this country should be just for Christians or for, in the old days, Judeo-Christians. Uh, and they want the country to be for people of every faith— and no faith at all, which is something I strongly believe in. But here's the thing. The separation of church and state should not mean the segregation of mm. moral values from our public life. Mm. There's a real difference in separating church and state, but not segregating our values, our moral values from our public life. Martin Luther King Jr. never said, 
you should be for a civil rights act and a voting rights bill because you're Judeo-Christian and my religion gets to win. He never said that. He made an argument that invoked Jesus and Jeremiah and Isaiah, but he knew he had to win the, the, the debate about the common good, that a civil rights act and a voting rights bill had to be good not just for black Baptists and Judeo-Christians, but for all of us, for the common good. We've got to win the public debate about what's best for the common good, and in doing so, invoking our uh, what's got moral authority for us, our values, our religion is perfectly acceptable, but respecting all the other religious faith and other values that the country has to be for. So that's a critical thing to do. Now, in our system, we have a two-party system, and third parties generally don't work, right? So I think we have to not try to locate this in a third party, but rather in a third way. The challenges both parties and all parties. I don't want the left to act like they own religion either, like the right does. I want all of us to say our faith should hold all of us accountable to the values of what our faith really say in public life. Mm. That Jesus should make us all uncomfortable with our political status quo, with our accepting things as they are, with our ignoring those whom Jesus deliberately instructs us to be most conscious of, most aware of, and most protective of. That is a revolutionary way of confronting politics in a deeper way. Don't go left, don't go right, go deeper. Or as I often say, the right gets it wrong and the left doesn't get it. The right gets it wrong about religion and the left doesn't get it. So how do we go deeper here? That's what I'm calling for, not just let's split up a religious right and a religious left and take political sides. I, w- I want to read actually one more, one more section. This was one of my favorite chapters of the book. You say, perhaps a third way or better yet, a moral movement to revive and renew American politics on both sides of the aisle may be the way forward for people of faith who put the poor and vulnerable, the consistent dignity of all human life, strong families and gender equality, the central priority of racial and economic justice, a foreign policy of peacemaking and the urgent need for the environmental defense of the planet at the center of their faith-based political convictions. Our loyalty to Christ above all earthly rulers means that our support for candidates and parties should never be unconditional and always based on which candidate's character and policies will do more to advance God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. It is past time for a new moral conversation about politics. That's what I'm calling for, really that new moral conversation about politics, not taking sides, but that moral conversation. And, and, uh, and William, it does lead sometimes to civil disobedience 
Uh, and, you know, I often have people come up to me and say, oh, I was arrested with you some way back at some point. <laughs> You've been I, arrested a couple uh, times, Jim. Yeah, uh, yeah. Is it 24? I think it's 25 now. <laughs> but, but the point is, the, the last time was indicative of what I like to be arrested for mm. because it was a tax bill that literally was going to make the rich richer by cutting their taxes and paying for it by cutting programs to the poor. It will make the rich richer and the poor poor. That's not rhetorical. That's what this tax bill was going to do. So we had lobbied. We had done press conferences. We had preached. We had gone to see members of the Senate. We'd done everything you're supposed to do. But on the day of the vote in the U.S. Senate, we went to the Hart Office Building atrium, beautiful place, and we began just to read the Bible. Uh, there are 2,000 passages in the Bible about the poor. 2,000. So when the sergeant at arms there, the police chief said, he didn't really want to arrest us while wearing our robes and there's bishops and very religious looking people. And he didn't want, there's 12 of us, he didn't really want to arrest. He said, what are you going to do? We're going to read the Bible about the poor, just all those scriptures. Oh, how long will that take? <laughs> I said, well, there are 2,000 verses about the poor in the Bible. He said, oh, that's going to take too long. <laughs> We're going to have to arrest you. I said, okay. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> so we're all reading our Bibles, and when they handcuff you, you have to put your Bible down to be handcuffed. Mm. So there was this banner which had the scripture that I read. I love to read in Capitol Hill, Isaiah 10. Uh, Woe to you legislators. Woe to you legislators who pass laws that deny my people of their rights. I put that down, and we're all putting our Bibles down, and we're being handcuffed. And we were taken away, and and Jim Rice, uh, my, the editor of Sojourners, went to the same uh, sergeant afterwards and said, "Can we now take these Bibles home with us?" <laughs> and he said, "Oh no, the Bibles are evidence of a crime." <laughs> <laughs> and Jim smiled at him and said, "Well, I guess they are, aren't they?" Hmm. And the sergeant. Is an African-American Capitol policeman, probably a churchgoer, mm. got it right away and said, indeed, the <laughs> Bibles are evidence of a crime. <laughs> so that's what I want to lift up. I yeah. want to lift up the Word of God, mm. the Bible, what Jesus tells us in places like that, mm. so we know what our choices really are. That's not a, a new party. That's, a, that's another way yeah. that holds politics accountable. The music you're listening to is provided by this podcast's very own William Matthews. Reclaiming Jesus Now is brought to you by Sojourners. Faith in action for social justice. Podcast produced by Paul Woodhull from the District Productive Podcast Network and Chris Latondres. To learn more about Jim's new book, visit us online at book.sojo.net. That's book.sojo.net. And if you like what you heard today, please help us spark more conversations about the future of faith by telling a friend or leaving a quick review. That makes all the difference. Thanks for listening. God bless you.